This episode of History Replays today, the Richmond History Podcast, is brought to you by River City Segs, the premier Segway tour company in Richmond. The only Segway tour company with an indoor Segway-specific training area. It's the only one in Virginia that has that, and it's housed in our 1884 firehouse. Find out more information at rivercitysegs.com or book your tour there as well. Uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, at 804segs. Instagram, those are all going to be great places to follow and keep up with their seasonal tours and discounts. And if you're on there, you might actually find out about our Ghosts and Grizzly Stories Tour. Uh, some of the paranormal incidences that have been reported in the city and also just some of the more mysterious and gruesome murders that have happened here, here in Richmond. Um, oh, I can't forget this. This is one thing I want to make sure you know is Always practice safe sags. This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. My name is Jeff Major. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you're having a spectacular day, wherever you're listening to this. We got Ben Anderson on the show. He's a park guide for the National Park Service. You'll find him at the Maggie Walker House uh, many days out of the week. He's also a PhD candidate in American Studies, focusing on 20th century African American history at William and Mary. Well, you know what I'm saying. He's it's not African Americans at William and Mary in the 20th century. You understand it's 20th century African American history. He just happens to be studying school at. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, anyways, he's working on his dissertation on Miles Davis, uh, which makes the whole thing perfect, that he would have done so much research and given some lectures on the Hippodrome Theater in Jackson Ward, which is, which is what I talked to him about. And it's actually not a National Park Service site, um, which is pretty spectacular um, that he was able, enabled to uh, uh, actually do the research for that and, and you know, carry on a conversation like this about it. It's pretty fantastic. Um, you know, the, there's an amazing list of people that have played at the Hippodrome. He actually has trouble finding proof of some of the people that they ever played there, um, but it doesn't mean that they didn't, and, and we'll get into that with him as well. And this is kind of a long conversation, so I'm going to get quickly get to it, but first, some business. There is a picture that we reference, it's from when the Hippodrome opened, and it's a, which was 100 years ago. It's 2013 now. would have been 100 years ago that the theater actually opened. So I'm going to put the, the original picture up. It doesn't look anything like the theater does today. There was actually a fire that took out the, the whole facade. Um, so you'll see it's a spectacularly different. That's going to be at historyreplaystoday.org. Uh, you also can comment there. Let me know. It's in the Ben Anderson um, post, the Ben Anderson Hippodrome post at historyreplaystoday.org. Um, also, let me know where, what you think at History Replays on Twitter, uh, History Replays Today on Facebook, and on Tumblr. And I'm going to get this thing started to start the conversation. How else would you do it than to ask, when did the Hippodrome open, Ben? April 14th, 1913. Okay. So, you know, it turned 100 earlier this year. Right. Uh, and... So, I mean, you just showed me this picture, which, uh, I mean, because I guess it's like the Hippodrome. Like, what is, why, why would they name it the Hippodrome? That, 
That's a good question. I mean, the, the you know the name itself has Greek origins as sure. a as a place, you know, kind of a gathering place for entertainment. Right. Um, but it was also a pretty popular name for places like that. I mean, okay. there are tons of other you know theaters that get called hippodromes. Okay. Even around that time period, in fact, uh, one of the things that makes it <laughs> interesting but also confusing is that you know soon after the hippodrome opens up, it actually has joined a vaudeville circuit, a uh, specific vaudeville circuit, so that has, you know, acts that go, you know, through the Hippodrome in Richmond, but then cycles through, you know, a whole other series of theaters, uh, the Virginia, North Carolina, you know, D.C., Baltimore area. And one of the others is, you know, on that same circuit as the Hippodrome down in Danville, Virginia, you know, for oh, instance. Nice. So <laughs> it's never kind of the only place called the Hippodrome. In fact, sure. there's a Hippodrome in London, there's a Hippodrome in New York, they get a lot, that oh, okay. a lot more high profile. Right, because I was thinking about that. It seems like a, it seems like a strange, to go back to Greek origins for a black theater. Like I guess I don't know what they would be rooted in other than that, but it seems like a very white. I don't name. know. Yeah, but he, you know, what's what's also one of the interesting things, I guess, kind of the ironic things about theater is that, you know, here it is, this icon, you know, of, of you know, black culture and black performance in Jackson Ward, a neighborhood that's become known for. Uh, you know, the concentration and success of black-owned businesses. Uh, the Hippodrome was n- was not, at least in its in its beginnings, and not, as far as I can tell, for for many many years, a black-owned theater. Uh, huh. This was a white-owned theater, um, at least up through. And then it's hard to tell, but after World War II, uh, it, it's possible that it could have been owned by an African American, but. Um, now, there's also the question of, you know, the person who owns it and the person who's managing it. Uh, you know, that all seems to be, you know, white for many, many years. Uh, but every now and then it's the owner, for most of that time, that gets, you know, uh, gets the press. So it's sure. kind of hard to tell who's the manager all the time. Right. And, of course, you know, whether or not that person's African American or not. But ownership uh, of it from, from the beginning, in 1913, up through it, at least up to and perhaps for a while after World War II, it's all white. Huh, and and because this picture is actually uh, has it says uh, you know erected entirely for colored people. Mm-hmm. I mean, would it have been actually erected by colored people? I mean, would because I know that, you know a lot of those buildings in Jackson Ward are actually you know there's seems like a um, a growing um, black architecture architects and stuff like that. I mean, would that have been that? I can't answer. Um, I'd love to. Be, I'd love to know that. Um, but I've, I've found nothing on who actually built the theater. I found that uh, the original owner, uh, a woman named Amanda Thorpe, actually submits her building permit on August 30th. And thankfully, uh, due to the digitization of the Times Dispatch, a lot of that real kind of idiosyncratic stuff uh, gets posted in there. This is a daily paper, thankfully. But you know, uh, the building permit's in there. Um, it's you know, it's going to cost. You know, twenty thousand dollars to build. It's going to have a seating capacity of seven hundred people, and it has the coordinates on the street where it's going to be. But beyond that, it doesn't tell us you know who's going to build it. And I haven't found anything about it since. And and how many? Uh, do you have any like? I mean, seven seven hundred seems like a lot. I mean, it seems like a pretty huge place, right? I mean, it was, yeah. Because uh, you're the black population at that time is mostly going to be like Jackson Ward, Navy Hill. Um, I mean, is there any? way to even know how many people lived in those neighborhoods at that time, or I guess approximately? Yeah, actually, uh, the, oh my gosh, the, um, the black population in Richmond really starts to soar, you know, 
right after, immediately after the Civil War, uh, and kind of continues, it kind of bottoms out a little bit um, right around the turn of the century. But in 1900 to 1910, 1910 to 1920, uh, we see some big numbers you know, coming through. So um, I think actually 1900 to 1910, it jumps, uh, I guess, what, four, about 45%. Uh, wow. From gosh, or something like you know, 23,000 to 27,000 just in 10 years. Oh, wow, okay. Um, and so what's, what's significant, I think, about that is that you know, even though there had been some you know, big black businesses in Jackson Moore prior to that, you know, the True Reformers Bank, for instance, in 1888, uh, the first black-owned you know, bank in the United States, um, you know, that first decade of the 20th century is when you see another big boom of you know, black-owned businesses in the area, particularly... You know, what starts out as Miller's Hotel in 1904, it'll eventually become Eggleston's Hotel, right. for instance. Uh, and also, importantly for the Hippodrome, you'll see the beginning of a theater called the Dixie Theater, which, as far as my research is concerned, I credit that with really laying the foundation for the creation of the Hippodrome eventually, because it's the Dixie Theater that uh, was the first black theater in Richmond. Uh, I think there's some contradictory reports on that, but I'm, I'm convinced that it was. And you know, and the people who owned that, who got that started, were the same people who started the Hippodrome in 1912. Okay. And after the Dixie had been really, really popular, and so the Hippodrome, I think, gets built eventually by the same people who started the Dixie, having been convinced that the Dixie was, you know, was so successful that you know Richmond is clearly becoming a, a city big enough for two black theaters. Right. So the Hippodrome kind of comes into existence on the, you know. And do you know where that was, the Dixie? Uh, I do. Uh, it was. It starts out. I think its first location in 1907. I have it. I don't, I don't know exactly where it was, but it was only there for a short amount of time. There's some building code issues, so they had to move it uh, pretty soon after it opened. But in 1908, it opens up at the corner of uh, Broad Street and Brook. Okay. Uh, and you know, it stays there until it closes down in the early 1920s. Wow. So. So that's not even very far. I mean, that's two theaters that are. You know, exactly. Um, in fact, in, you know, in 1910, um, just across on the same side of Broad Street, which is technically the Jackson Ward side, the north side of Broad Street, at that time, uh, you had another theater open up called the Peak Inn, which they're also conflicting at, you know, uh, reports on when that opens up, but it looks more like 1910. Uh, I'd originally thought 1906, there was something about that, um, but uh, I think it was 1910, all, all things seem to suggest that. But they were within a block of each other on that same side, and so you had the Pekin, you had the Dixie. As far as I know, the folks that opened the Dixie and will eventually open the, the Hippodrome don't have anything to do with the Pekin, but, you know, uh, if nothing else, it may have been a model for, for those folks that are starting the Dixie that, you know, look, you know, if the Dixie can coexist peacefully with the Pekin, then... You know, my gosh, then Richmond is clearly a, a city big enough for these, for two black theaters. And so the Hippodrome, you know, gets, uh, gets created, I think, you know, uh, as a result of that. And in fact, you know, no, no, no surprise, it's not only, you know, the only, the same owners and also the same guy who was managing the Dixie when the Hippodrome gets built moves over to the Hippodrome. Um, you know, the Hippodrome uh, opens up. It opens up on the same vaudeville circuit that the Dixie had been on since 1912. So same owners... Same idea. Right. You know, this is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it ain't broke, don't <laughs> fix it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's you know, there's some, there's some important distinctions. I mean, the, the Hippodrome is built, you know, further in, in the you know, interior of Jackson Ward, you know, rather than, you know, being along, you know, Broad Street, kind of on the outer fringes, so to speak. You know, and so the fact that the Hippodrome is built several blocks, you know, north of Broad Street uh, would theoretically make it a little bit more accessible to, to Jackson Ward residents. Um, you know, the Dixie Theater was a converted storefront. 
<laughs> right. Hippodrome is a theater built just for that. Right. Um, as far as I can tell, they have. I think the Hippodrome has a, has a bigger seating capacity. I haven't really been able to find exactly how many the Dixie could hold. Um, but you know, uh, in the Hippodrome, you know, I think was clearly in some ways as, as much as it was kind of the uh, you know uh, as much as it had kind of come into the existence on the on the on the back or on the coattails of the Dixie Theater, it was it did kind of mark a step up from it. Yeah, uh, in some important significant ways. And so, does it? You know, what is Jackson Ward like at that time? I mean, is it, are they even tearing down buildings, or are there enough built? You know, is it as densely populated? I mean, densely with buildings as it is now, or you know, are people? Is this, is it already a destination? At that it's point? already a destination. Um, you know, it'll by you know certainly by the 1920s, uh, the census records show. I mean, over 90 percent of the city's African American population lives in or. Ab- 90% of Richmond's African-American population is living in Jackson Ward. Right. So it's become a humongous neighborhood, um, even bigger than the 40 square blocks that technically make up historic Jackson Ward and North Jackson Ward, you know, the interstate. Uh, but it's a big place, and all you have to really do is go back, if you have access to Richmond City directories at that time, mm-hmm. and look it up. And, you know, you're going to see, you know, these streets, every single number. I mean, you know, the odd and even numbers are just either a residence or a business. I mean, up and down, you know, 2nd Street... Which you know, sadly, is is not as much the case today. Sure. Um, you know, uh, so I would say you know it's it's not as densely packed today as as it was then. But my God, you had what what seemed to have been every available you know, square right. footage of you know residential space and business space really starting to be utilized. Sure. Uh, and would be for 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 many many years. Uh, and so the uh, it, it opens as a movie theater though. Right? Is it not a theater and and and? It's more vaudeville theater than a movie theater. Okay, when it opens up. Um, All right. And you know, when you look at, thankfully, uh, among the many papers that have been digitized over the past you know ten plus years, uh, one of them has been a paper from Indianapolis called the Indianapolis Freeman, which, for whatever reason, I'm not entirely sure, but it covers black theater more closely than. Any other black paper out there, and the Chicago Defender was covering you know black theater pretty closely too. But I think the the Freeman you know had a had a leg up on the Defender even on that. And so you know and it's covering black theater you know as it exists as a national entity. It's not just you know black theater in Indiana. Uh, and so that's really the primary source. In, t- in fact, for you know finding out that the Hippodrome opened in 1913, you know wow. it had a it had a you know uh, it had a little segment uh, you know every week. That was called, you know, what's what on the Dudley circuit, which was the vaudeville circuit that the Hippodrome had joined when it opens up, and that the Dixie, of course, had been on. So, uh, and every week you go into the Indianapolis Freeman and find out who's there. And you know, I know they were showing a couple of movies in, in the in the Hippodrome's early days, but uh, I mean, this was this is you know first and foremost of vaudeville theater. They're bringing in you know two acts a week. On, on average, that were performing almost every day. Wow. It's really kind of exhausting to think about. And these were people that were, you know, probably, you know, staying at the Miller's Hotel, mm-hmm. you know, right across the street. So really kind of keeping that particular block of Second Street, uh, you know, kind of real, you know, concentrated as far as, you know, the black performers that were coming through. That's probably where they were spending the majority of their time. But, uh, but they were staying there and getting their mail sent out of the Hippodrome you know, or the or the you know the hotel, and it's just, I mean it, to think about these folks as lifestyles is just kind of it's just kind of exhausting too. I mean, you right. think about yeah, it, yeah. my gosh, these are folks that move around from one theater to another in this vaudeville circuit every week. 
And thank God, you know, these papers, like the Freeman exist, you know, for these people to actually be able to say, you know, this is where I'm going to be. Anybody who's interested in getting in touch with me, sure. you know, send your mail here. Obviously, this is in, in the years and years before, you know, emails and text right. messages and all that stuff. Um, and these people, once they went on the road, they're on the road for, you know, who knows how long. Because they might go through one vaudeville circuit and then join another one and sure. perhaps another one before finally, you know, finally coming home. But. And, and are, are they, is there any indication if they're, how they're selling out? Or, I mean, are they, are they fine? I mean, is it easy for them to open up and do this? or For the, yeah, I mean, to, to open the Hippodrome? Yeah, I mean, three, three theaters. I mean, are they, are they actually making money here or... Absolutely. It's hard to tell exactly how much, uh, but it's very, very clear that they are. In fact... Uh, not struggling, though. Not struggling, as far as I can tell. In fact, I think one of the earliest, uh, I think one of the most interesting moments in the Hippodrome's history uh, occurs just seven years after it opens, in, in the spring of 1920, when it appears the Hippodrome has been almost too successful for its own good. Uh, the owner at the time, is a man named Charles Summer, uh, will... Will go public with plans that he had to uh, to build a brand new theater on Third Street, the next block over, <laughs> or the next street over, anyway. And this was going to be a theater, according to newspaper reports, that was going to have a seating capacity of between two and three thousand people. Huh. It was going to be built at the cost of two hundred thousand dollars. Wow! And according to several different newspaper reports, uh, early nineteen hundred two thousand dollars. Yeah, this is 1920. 200,000. 200,000. Yeah. Um, wow, that's... It's a that's lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money. I mean, you know, even look forward into, like, the mid to late 20s, you know, when Summer actually, uh, as it turns out, will be behind the opening of the Brooklyn Theater, um, you know, kind of on the city's north side, and eventually the Bird Theater as well, mm-hmm. uh, kind of on what was known then as the West End. And these theaters weren't even costing that much. They are costing close to it, but they weren't costing even that much. And so it was a lot, a lot of money. And, uh, you know, we know that the plans for that theater were pretty far along, you know, by the spring of 1920 because, you know, uh, as far as newspapers go, newspaper reports, I mean, he's submitted uh, his building permit. He's hired an architectural firm. Uh, the land, as it turns out, has been in his family, you know, for, for years. Uh, so he didn't even have to buy that. Uh, but, you know, all systems seem, you know, seem go at this point. And... You know, just like that, the story just kind of disappears from the papers. Uh, I think we're we're pretty safe in saying the theater never gets built because I think if it had, we'd know about it. Right. Uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, um, you know, the it kind of marks the the Hippodrome's kind of first arrival at, at this crossroads of its history, where you know this has been a really successful theater. You know, it's only seven years old at this point, but already, you know, the ownership is already thinking about the next you know bigger and better thing. So whereas the Hippodrome Theater, or rather the Dixie, was kind of the stepping stone to creating the Hippodrome, it seems like when the Hippodrome is just seven years old, the ownership is thinking of the Hippodrome is the stepping stone to the next sure. big thing, which would have been kind of the Hippodrome, you know, 2.0, so to speak. It, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't get built. But I think that one of the important things to note about that is that you know because it doesn't get built, and I think you know we'll, I'm, I'm still trying to find out exactly why it doesn't, but. Uh, because it doesn't, I think we can kind of safely say that that allows the Hippodrome to kind of live to see another day. Because I think, sure, you know, had it have been built, the Hippodrome might easily become an afterthought. Right. Uh, we wouldn't be probably here talking about. Right. And so, what? Um, I mean, what is actual vaudeville? I mean, you're looking at singer. It's just it's just like a variety show, right? It's a variety show, um, and you know, I mean, so you have a real, you know, as, as the as the name suggests, you have a real. You know, wide variety of kinds of entertainment types, uh, everything from comedians, tap dancers, 
you know, uh, singers, exotic dancers on occasion, uh, minstrel shows, uh, stuntmen, acrobats, you know, I mean, all sorts of things. I mean, people doing impersonations. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just wild to think about now. I mean, and one of the interesting things, you know, being the fact that I, li- you know, I work at the Maggie Walker site just around the corner, and, you know, we talk about the Hippodrome, you know, often you know, when, we, when we bring folks and we're about to take them in the house and we talk about it, just kind of put her house and uh, time in context. Uh, and so, it, of course, it occurs to us to think about, well, you know, she was right around the corner from the Hippodrome, and that's really cool, but would she have gone to the Hippodrome, yeah. you know, during this time? And I think one of the interesting things is probably not, because vaudeville was, you know, you know, was seen by a lot of people, at least from the middle and upper classes. It's pretty lowbrow stuff. This okay. Was, you know, this wasn't very serious entertainment, as far as people like Maggie Walker, and, and in, 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 in a lot of members of the black middle and upper class at the time were, you know, a lot more concerned about, uh, you know, uh, racial uplift and, and moving the race forward, and really, you know, this whole idea of leading by example. Uh, was really central to uh, to a lot of their thinking, and so they're often, you know, uh, very concerned with dressing properly and acting properly, and really doing, you know, a lot of what they can to really convince, you know, white America that they're that they're worth integrating, with, sure. so to speak. So, but then when it comes to things like vaudeville, this is kind of like, you know. You know, right. They're kind of turning their noses down on it because this isn't doing you know uh, very serious work in that regard. It's not sure. it's not moving the ball forward as far as you know racial equality. It's not making a serious argument for you know, why there should be respectability if, if nothing else between the two races. And so uh, I think it's safe to say we wouldn't have caught Maggie Walker in there dead uh, during these vaudeville <laughs> years. Um, and, and are there any of these people though? Someone dealing with I mean I know that you know Bojangles started. Mm-hmm. Doing on the vaudeville circuit. I mean, are, are any of these other folks people that someone would know, or is it just kind of churning people out? You know, it's it's hard to say. You know, before you know, a lot of this stuff is uh, filmed or recorded. It's like you know, they kind of disappear into the ether. It's hard to tell. I mean, you've got this really dizzying array of performers that are coming through during the vaudeville years, uh, the teens and their into the twenties. Uh, and tracking down each one of them is a real difficult task. I've I've tried to do a little bit of investigation in some of them, and you know, like I said, I mean, you know, there isn't a whole lot there. There are a lot of, I mean, the vaudeville scene was just full of tons of people that had, you know, uh, you know real specific act, and may, maybe it was popular for a while, and then they stopped doing vaudeville, and then you know, who cares? And who knows right. Um, so there aren't, as far as I can tell, you know, a lot of really you know, what would become household names coming through. Okay. The Hippodrome Theater. And I think that's important to kind of mention, too, because you know, a lot of times when people think about the Hippodrome Theater, some of the first things that come to their mind are, you know, all the famous folks right. that went through there. You know, uh, as, as people like to say, you know, Duke Ellington performed there. Uh, you know, Billie Holiday, you know, Cap Calloway, Louis Armstrong, all of those names uh, that are they get associated with the theater. I mean, the vaudeville days are not when that's happening. Right. And when, <laughs> when is that starting? That... Really seems to get underway uh, in the, starting in the late 1920s. Okay. Um, it's another kind of important kind of crossroads that the Hippodrome finds itself at. You know, uh, in, in 1928, in the fall of 1928, uh, when you know Selma makes the decision essentially to kind of you know make that switch from you know doing a lot of vaudeville and trying to become you know more a movie theater than a than a performing arts theater, more or less. And they've been showing movies for years, you know, the, at the Hippodrome prior to that, but. Um, you know, since day one, you know, part of the, you know, one of the, one of the things about vaudeville is that you have all of these live acts, but then you also have musical accompaniment. And so places like the Hippodrome Theater had house bands uh, that would be accompanying 
the acts on stage, but they would also occasionally be providing the accompaniment for silent films right. of that time, too. And so, you know, theaters like that, you know, typically had you know, house bands, successful ones, and Heavy Drum was no exception. Uh, but in the fall of 1928, you know, in order to make that switch, uh, you know, someone has to fire the house band at the Hippodrome, um, which may or may not have been a tough decision. He was, he was kind of a, a shrewd businessman, it seemed. So uh, he might not have had you know, too many thoughts about it beyond that. But it turns out one of the sad stories about the Hippodrome is that one of the guys that gets fired from the Hippodrome house band, a guy named R.B. Howard, seems to have gone by the nickname Keg or Papa Caggy uh, as it comes up in the paper. Uh, he had been the house pianist, uh, it, it was said, for 14 years, or almost from day one he had oh, wow. been there. And he gets fired because of this technological you know, shift that's going on. And it's not just going on at the Hippodrome, this is going on really nationwide because... Uh, oh, like talking are, movies. Right. You yeah. know, when we see that first famous example in the year earlier, 1927, with the jazz singer Nell mm-hmm. Jolson, which is kind of a half, you know, talking motion picture, half silent film. But, you know, by 1928, I think it, it seems to have become apparent that this was indeed the wave of the future and that, you know, theaters, you know, you, you start to see a rash of theaters that open their doors in the late 1920s uh, to become, you know, movie theaters, you know, uh, first and foremost. Uh, the Burr Theater, for instance, you know, right. really becomes that in, in December 1928. But... Um, you know, for places like the Hippodrome that had you know, kind of a previous life, <laughs> you know, you had to make some kind of a hard decision. You know, if you're if you're going to uh, if you're going to kind of go along with the tide, uh, and so you know, someone has to fire the house band in order in order to uh, to, to make that switch. So it kind of it, it becomes this scene of uh, of how that technological shift plays out in a pretty dramatic way, uh, you know, across the country. So it reminds us of the, the human consequences when there are these, you know, major technological sure. and ultimately like kind of a cultural shift because, you know, as far as movie technology is concerned, we haven't looked back from that. I mean, that's right. still what we come to expect from a movie, yeah. <laughs> obviously, some sound accompaniment. Isn't that now novelty that the bird has a, an organist and it's... Uh it is. However, you know, the organs, that was a popular feature of a lot of those movie theaters from that time period because even during, you know, the silent film era, um, you had it became popular to have organs that accompanied the uh, the movies. Mm-hmm. And so they were, you know, sometimes movies would get sent out with actual scores with them. Um, every now and then, you know, when a movie would get sent out and it didn't have a score, then the how, either the house band or maybe the organist could just play whatever they want. I mean, they right. kind of you know, improvise based on what they're seeing on the screen. You know, <laughs> uh, which would have made every showing different. Sure. Uh, kind of one of the, what's fascinating about it, but. You know, uh, but these organs, I mean, are, you know, obviously have a lot of features, you know, which was intentional. I mean, they had sound effects and all that kind of thing. So you could do more with these big organs like the Wurlitzers at, at the Bird and um, and its, you know, uh, and, and the big theater that really precedes the Bird that might have, you know, been like the Dixie to the Hippodrome, which was the Brooklyn Theater, which uh, a guy named Charles Summa and the Hippodrome's first manager, a man named Walter Coulter, actually opened up in 1925. And that's, you know, on the north side, it has a big organ, thought mm-hmm. to have been the second biggest in the city when it opens up. But that's, again, to kind of, you know, uh, to kind of accompany these these films and, and you know, with a whole organ, you could do a whole lot with sound effects and also it being a chordal instrument with all sorts of possibilities, you know, uh, you know a good replacement for an actual band. You know, right, you're only paying one guy, yeah. Paying one person. Uh, so, you know, that's that's essentially why, you know, these organs become part of these theaters. Sure. Um, which is kind of neat. But. And, and so, you know, you mentioned, like, you know, Billy Holiday, I think, like, Cab Calloway, and, you know, all these folks. One of the things that I've always been curious is, like, they played there, but were they famous when they played there? 
you know. We have to back up a second. Um, okay. Because we're not even entirely sure that they did play there. Okay. Um, a lot of people say they did, and I'm not at this point, you know, willing to say that they for sure did not. Um, but one of the issues there, you know, once you dig a little deeper and you try to find out, you know, what was actually going on at the Hippodrome and do some, you know, uh, kind of deeper research, I have yet to come across actual hard evidence that they were there. I mean, it could be that their names are associated with the film, or excuse me, with the, with the theater, because, you know, um, you know, people remember seeing them there, and it gets passed down kind of through the right. oral tradition. But I just have yet to see any sort of evidence that that, that they show up. Um, in fact, I think one of the most telling pieces of evidence that that we have that maybe suggests that that they didn't uh, wasn't was a contract I was able to find. Uh, for Duke Ellington to perform there in 1935. This is to be in September of 1935. And it's not signed by Duke, which is a bad sign. Right. <laughs> you want to see that. Um, but I think what's really telling about it was that uh, this was a contract for six shows to be played in one day. Close and close. what that kind of reminds us of is you know, the limitations as far as seating capacity for the theater are concerned. Because... One of the other important things to, to, to think about in context of the Hippodrome is that, you know, yeah, you have the Burr Theater that opens up in December 1928, but in, uh, I think it's early 1927, you have the opening of the mosque, right. too, which, that has seating capacity of about 5,000. And so, you know, what that ends up doing, you know, if you think about that whole technological shift of, you know, going from, you know, vaudeville and silent films to talking motion pictures... And what that forces the Hippodrome to do if they're kind of going along with the time. You know, once you have a place like the Hippodrome and then a place like the mosque in town, and of course the mosque wasn't the first 5,000 capacity sure. venue. I mean, the city auditorium preceded that. And in fact, uh, you know, this is the scene of Independent Order St. Luke conventions. Maggie Walker was there many, many times. Uh, some other acts had performed there too. But the mosque was certainly the, you know, the newest uh, and, and, and uh, the nicest it seemed. And so what that what that seems to do is present you know these big name performers with a with a real important decision. You know when right. they're coming to Richmond, right. you either perform one show at the mosque or six shows at the Hippodrome in order to reach the same amount of people. Sure. And so and I think when 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 you think about that um, in in context of, of that contract for Duke Ellington, mm-hmm. it seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah. But in you know at that time, is it, are you already getting you know because blacks aren't going to the Mosque, they are. Or they are. Um, it has a kind of a, a complicated uh, and frustrating kind of racial history in and of itself. It opens in twenty seven, and I think African Americans are allowed to even uh, go to the theater until the following year, nineteen twenty eight. They're actually not even allowed to go into the front entrance, uh, and I don't think until the mid nineteen thirties. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's a you know so when it opens up, I mean it's a place that African Americans want to go to right away, sure. um, and as, as to be expected, uh, you know they're they don't like having to go in <laughs> these side entrances, and they shouldn't. Um, and so, you know, but they, you know, uh, it does become the the scene of a lot of you know, uh, you know, a lot of you know black cultural events. I mean, you have basketball games being performed there or, or being played there you know, by Virginia State and Virginia Union, um, and those are really big events. I'm still thinking, you know, trying to imagine like where these basketball games are being played. Right, you know, knowing, you know, kind of the inside of the theater, be kind of curious about that. But, um, but you know, as it turns out, during the 1930s, you know, Richmond was a big stop for a lot of these top tier performers. I mean, Ella mm-hmm. Fitzgerald comes through, 
gosh, I guess, I think three times uh, between the 30s and into 1940. I mean, Cab Calloway comes through, Count Basie comes through, uh, Louis Armstrong comes through, uh, Duke Ellington comes through. Um, but, you know, nine times out of ten, they're at the, they're at the mosque. Huh. Okay. And, and the fact that there is no, you know, reporting on them going to the Hippodrome, again, doesn't mean that they didn't. It just means that there is, you know, kind of we're back to square one. There's right. You know, real hard evidence. And But one of the other telling things, though, is that when you look back at uh, when Duke Ellington is, is thought to have come to Richmond for the very first time, uh, that was in March of 1935, he plays at a place called the Tan- Tantia Gardens. Uh, which is out on what is now, you know, it was out on, it was out on West Broad Street, the 27 or 2800 block. Uh, it's now a parking lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no longer there, unfortunately. Uh, that, by the way, was also opened up by Walter Coulter, first manager of the Hippodrome. So it's all kind this of incestuous, yeah, <laughs> uh, theater scene going on. But, um, you know, when, when Duke performs there in March of 1935, I mean, the press is all over it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there are articles hyping it up. There's even a concert view afterwards. I mean, so there's a lot of press. There are advertisements. And so it's really kind of hard for me to believe that, uh, you know, that F. Duke was to have come in September of 1935 and performed the Hippodrome, that he wouldn't have gotten... Yeah, nobody would have said anything about it. Right. Now, you have to remember, of course, the Tantia Gardens was, you know, primarily a white establishment. So, you know, and of course, the Times-Dispatch, you know, a white newspaper. So, you know, could that have had something to do with it? Maybe. Um, but, you know, the, the Times-Dispatch did, you know... Ended up publishing things uh, about the Hippodrome, certainly in, in the 1940s and 1950s, especially. Um, you know, they're a really good source on who's who's coming through. So it's not like they ignored it completely. Uh, I think it was maybe more of an afterthought for them. Sure. And then Tantia, but it's hard to believe for me to believe that uh, there wouldn't have at least been one mention of it. Right. Um, so uh, I think I think what we kind of have to come down to or come back to is that in order for these folks to have, have played the Hippodrome. I think what we kind of have to believe at this point until we see you know, hard evidence still presents itself is that if they did perform there, uh, it seems most likely that they're performing you know, maybe like midnight shows or, or things that were kind of under the radar. Right. Like things that we can't necessarily prove, but maybe shows that they were, perform- they were performing maybe at the mosque for that one big show and then, you know, saying, saying you know, well, hell, we're in town. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could use some uh, Yeah, let's, let's, let's perform. In, in, in the Hippodrome, I'm sure, would have been a very, very different scene, a very different kind of performance. You know, obviously right. much more intimate. Uh, you would have packed a 700-seat theater. I mean, the acoustics would have been different. I'm sure the crowd response would have been different. I mean, yeah, I'm, you know, uh, if the band wasn't, you know, too exhausted, you know, after playing, you know, a show for 5,000, yeah, they might have been up for something like that. That might have been a real exciting possibility. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm not willing to say it definitely didn't happen. Sure. But um, but again, you know, there's, uh, as of yet, there, there's no hard evidence. It seems to. It's, so it's interesting. If they uh, if the black folks could get into the mosque. Mm-hmm. I'm sure white folks could get into the hippodrome, but would they have gone there? I mean, is that? It's hard to say. I mean. Uh, we know of one event early in Hippodrome's history where there's a wrestling match, a live wrestling match. Um, that, you know, the Times Dispatch actually talks about. And it was supposed to be, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the names. Um, Billy Brandon, uh, who was uh, described as the monarch demon from, from Norfolk. Nice. <laughs> uh, versus, oh God, I'm going to butcher the other guy's name. Uh, Sakiri, Sakrisi, something like that. But he was, uh, oh gosh. Uh, I forget his title, but it was the Liberian, uh, the Liberian monster, something like that. It was it was something pretty sensational, um, not unlike professional wrestling today. Sure. <laughs> but, I was say, is it actually were they actually fighting, or was it like theater, like today's wrestling, 
Or is there, I mean... I don't know. Because, uh, like, boxing and stuff, I mean, that was, like, you're only really getting past gloves. I yeah. mean, like, you know, I mean, that's not, like, you know, that kind of brutality is pretty, you know, watching some dude just actually, like, you know, right. I guess MMA okay. is, like, getting back now, and that's, sure. like, you know... Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know enough about it uh, to really say, but... Uh, you know, it might have been, you know, given the kind of hype it got, I mean, the fact that these guys have names, it, was, it, it, it might have just been kind of a sensationalized, yeah. uh, you know, fight, not, not, but so serious. But, you know, even back then, I mean, you know, when you think about the boxing matches back then, I mean, they don't have the real super padded gloves and stuff that we have. Right, oh, no, so It might have been a more serious element to it than the stuff that we, that we see, but... Um, because but if there's there, a potential for death, let's pay for it, right? I mean, that's, I mean let's be honest. Yeah, uh, humans, humans are not very complicated yeah, creatures. Uh, seriously, um, but you know, nothing in the in the papers, you know, t- you know, talked about it in that in that regard. But they did mention that uh, for that particular rest of the match, that there was going to be a section of the Hippodrome reserved for white patrons, as they said. So that was at least one event where yeah. they were, I guess, expected and and welcomed. And I have yet to see other events that get described that way for the Hippodrome. So it wasn't, you know, completely uh, roped off, so, so right. to speak. But, um, but I imagine, though, for a lot of white residents in Richmond, the Hippodrome, you know, was, was probably more of an afterthought than anything else. I mean, you had lots of other, you know, big theaters that they could go to uh, that were attracting, you know, big-name folks. I mean, even before the mosque, you know, right. we had the Academy of Music. Um, you know, the other theaters that were long... Broad Street, uh, kind of adjoining the Dixie, uh, you know, but but stretching a little bit to the uh, to the to the east, you know, places you know, like the Bijou and the, and the Isis and uh, the Bluebird Theater, eventually, which Walter Coulter is behind as well. Okay, um, you know, they had they had plenty of options. I mean, so the Hippodrome really doesn't ever tend to be any, you know a, a place that that really seems to attract you know much much wide attention, especially you know once it's on the, the Black Vaudeville circuit. Right. I mean. You know that I think really kind of cements its its identity you know, as, as a black theater first and foremost, and, and so something that you know, white folks I'm, I'm willing to bet if they you know were, would have gone on record would have said something to the extent of well it's that's their theater that's sure. <laughs> that's that's theater for them. Uh, and so and there's so there's so going into the 40s they're still doing vaudeville in there. I mean that's like there yeah there there's a uh, showing more movies. Oh yeah, I mean. Actually, yeah. I mean, you know, once once it makes that switch in 1928, it becomes more of a movie theater than a live performance space. Okay. But um, importantly, it doesn't abandon the whole, you know, uh, the whole issue of, of having live performances come through. In fact, you know, even though again, to kind of go back to this whole idea that, that there is no hard evidence to, that, that that supports that these real, real big names were coming through. Uh, I think had they have come through, they would have been. You know, between the years of 1928 and 1937, you know, when it was being run by a guy named Charles Summer, uh, and when it was kind of this hybrid, you know, movie theater, live performance space, because what happens then is that, you know, yes, it's it's you know primarily showing movies, but you know, uh, acts are coming through on a, a little bit more more of a slower pace than they had been during the vaudeville era. You know, when you had you know two acts coming through a week, you know, sure. essentially what was what often amounted to eight acts a month. And then you get to this, you know, this period in the Hippodrome's history where it's more of a, a movie theater, and you start to only see newspaper coverage of maybe like one every week or maybe one every two weeks. So the act start, the live act starts slowing down, essentially in, in deference to the movies, it seems. 
but and, and that's that's like in the forties, right? I mean, is that going? That's that's late twenties and into the and into the thirties. And I think what, okay. what's important to note about that is that you know, and I, I can only theorize at this point, but you know, because the live act starts slowing down a little bit, and because movies, of course, are a really big draw and continue to be, you know, even despite the depression, you know, the Hippodrome's still making good money uh, during that period. Um, that because the live acts are, are slowing down in, again in comparison to the vaudeville days, uh, what that seems to suggest is that you know now that it's more of a movie theater than a vaudeville theater, it's not on the vaudeville circuit, which means that it's not getting acts imposed on it from the outside. So it's not the the person running the vaudeville circuit is not just you know saying, well here you go, here's the next act, you know because we signed with the vaudeville circuit. Uh, so it seems to suggest that maybe the management was freer to choose who comes and who doesn't come. But also, you know, uh, might also suggest that because they were bringing in fewer acts, that they had more money to pay, so they could be more picky about sure. who's coming. And I think, to me, uh, and again, we have to only theorize about, you know, why this is happening. But it makes sense to me to think about it in that regard because you have, you know, really the first instance in the Hippodrome's history where you have those kind of household names coming through in the late twenties and into the thirties. Uh, you know, big bands uh, under Chick Webb, mm-hmm. um, Tiny Bradshaw coming through. You know, Mamie Smith, Bessie Smith, you know, mm-hmm. coming through, and a famous blues singer. Sure. And they're known to have performed there. Uh, and so uh, that all, again, kind of, uh, you know, again, kind of comes back to, you know, uh, I think the Hippodrome, you know, being able to kind of be a little bit more choosy. And, you know, they're making, you know, good choices. I mean, you know, jazz and blues have really become very popular throughout the 1920s, and certainly once you get into the 1930s. You know, this is, it's a big draw. The cultural debate about, you know, is jazz good or is jazz not, it's still going on, but it, it's its its becoming, you know, it's, it's siding with jazz and blues more than it had right. you know, by the late teens and early 20s. So this is more respectable entertainment in any way. It's getting there. And, uh, you know, and so these are these are acts that you could bring in and, and be pretty, pretty sure are going to you know, draw a big audience. And, and it seems like a pretty um, huge shift from... Um, vaudeville, where you know you're having, you know, I- I'm expecting, you know, kind of what I envision is, you know, five, ten minute sets of just people o churning out. People are probably coming in and out of the, you know, and like a multiple hour thing, yeah, yeah. as opposed to, you know, Betsy Smith is coming and mm-hmm. you're going to come in and you're going to watch it for two hours and it's going to be Absolutely. a performance. Absolutely, yeah, it's very different. Uh, yeah, very different kind of thing, and uh, so you know, it amounts to, I think. What I've come to think of as the Hippodrome's first golden age, which is that period from 28 to 37, you know, when, you know, these, these you know, next-tier performers were coming through, the first wave of household names were coming through, um, movies were becoming big business. I mean, it's really, you know, whereas, you know, the early days, Black Vaudeville was, uh, you know, was successful, but, you know, when the Hippodrome opens in 1913, Black Vaudeville is in kind of in its early days. I mean, there, there are questions there about, you know, is this a legitimate... You know, enterprise. Right. Will this work? You know, uh, and, and it does clearly. You know, for 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 years. But you know, once the once the Hippodrome kind of makes that gamble and, and casts its lot with with movie with movies, um, you know, it makes a pardon the pun a sound decision. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, and becomes I think a more financially you know, stable enterprise uh, than it had before. And uh, and I think that kind of you know makes the future a little bit more secure than it had been. Clearly, you know. When you think back to that that moment in the 1920s when the Hippodrome was on the on the brink of being outdone by right. this other theater, I think by the time you get to the late 20s and into the mid 30s, you know that's the idea of doing that again. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, you know, is not 
you know, doesn't, you know, that the, the owner doesn't really ever think or apparently try to try to attempt that again. He, he seems to have kind of uh, become more more comfortable with the idea of just letting the hippodrome be, right. and not try to do the next big thing. So it seems like, you know, kind of that first moment of hippodromes, you know, long uh, long history where its kind of future is settled, its importance, its significance is really thoroughly recognized. And is it going to be um, affected much by, um, I guess the the depression. I mean, is that because it seems like that's you know. I mean, obviously it's depression. I mean, are they are those are those acts that are coming through now increasing, or they you know because to try and make more money, or are they you know decreasing because you know you're going through. I guess that because um, I can't remember exactly the dates you were saying, but that heydays. I mean, that's going into the depression and, and oh, yeah. dying in the middle of that, right? I mean, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the depression really, I think by most accounts, really kind of bottoms out in the early 1930s. You know, by 1932, 33, uh, uh, from what I could tell, really you start to really see the worst of it as far as unemployment and that kind of thing. But one of the funny things is, you know, uh, is that you know even during periods of economic you know, turmoil like the Great Depression, I mean, entertainment is something that people still desire. It helps. Um, I mean, movies, I think, you know, do maybe more business than, than they had before. I mean, so right. one of the kind of, one of the ironies. Of, yeah, and that's, that's what I was kind of um, wondering. Is I mean, is it is the depression going to cause people to go to the movies less or to the performances less or is it going to keep people from what's pretty much a leisurely mm-hmm. um, job to yeah. go around traveling and playing music I mean while you can make a lot of money most folks aren't making that much money and, you right. know I mean, right. the, the demand for entertainment can, continues to be high you know d- throughout the depression so I mean even though it might not seem like a uh, like a good idea or a solvent idea. I mean, being in the movie business, being in the entertainment business during the Depression wasn't that big of a uh, gamble, so to speak. I mean, there, there are plenty of, I'm sure, plenty of instances of, you know, folks that were running bands that you know, had to maybe shut down because, you know, there just weren't enough gigs. But, you know, I mean, this the 1930s, I mean, that's that's the era of, that's the golden age of, of swing music. I mean, yeah. The big band yeah. era. I mean, that's when jazz has become, has become America's popular music. Sure. I mean, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of wild to think about that, you know, at the same time that, you know, the depression is raging. Sure. Uh, and well, it gets a lot happier. It, the music more, gets happier. It provides, right, exactly. Yeah. It provides a kind of a happier, more positive alternative. Right. And, and maybe that's it. But um, but folks on that side of things uh, didn't seem to be nearly as affected as, you know, folks outside of the entertainment industry. Sure. Um, and, and as well, I know they have a... Um, a I guess in there now, a room they're calling a speakeasy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, during Prohibition, I mean, are they... I mean, I, I, I don't really even know much about Richmond Prohibition, I mean, but it seems like, just like everywhere else, you're going to get some liquor, right? I mean, <laughs> if you want to get a drink, you're going to get a drink somewhere. Sure. Um, I mean, is that... Are they... Any evidence that they're they're dealing with that kind of stuff, or... Oh, jeez. Do um, I don't know. Uh, there is... It comes up very rarely in, in newspaper reports, uh, this place... You know, there there is apparently a cafe or a restaurant uh, that adjoined the Hippodrome Theater. Uh, that the mother of the guy who, who owned the place in, in the, uh, between 1916 and 1937, the summer, uh, his mother seems to have owned that because her name comes up when that changes hands. Uh, but um, I think it was called the Hippodrome Cafe or Hippodrome Lunch. I think as it was referred to in one classified ad. So there, it's, there was. So is that English where like the Kroger spot there. is? I still have yet to figure that out. Okay. I, I don't know exactly. Um, I don't know exactly where that would have been, to be perfectly honest. So, I don't know. I think I think the 
the fact that there's a place that they're calling the Speakeasy now is obviously an homage to that Prohibition era when right. you know the Hippodrome was was kind of really thought to be in its heyday. Um, sure, and in many respects was. I mean, especially in that late twenties, early thirties, before Prohibition gets repealed in the early thirties. Uh, you know, that's when the Hippodrome was was doing quite well. Sure. So, but um, and 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 how is uh, I mean, World War Two is going to be you know coming up shortly there and there is. Um, I mean, it seems like they do pretty well there. They well, do fine right? uh, during World War II. It, it's under new management. I think one of the, one of the reasons why you know I think about that that golden age of the Hippodrome that I referenced as kind of ending in 1937 mm-hmm. is because that's when it uh, it changes hands as far as ownership is concerned. Okay. For as far as I can tell, the third time, uh, man Charles Selma, who had owned it since 1916, sells it in 1937 to a man named Abe Lichtman, uh, who is running a theater. Uh, theater chain out of Washington, D.C. called the Lichtman Theater. So the Hippodrome becomes part of a chain, not entirely unlike you know, Regal Cinemas that, that we think right. of today. So it kind of marks the first moment in the Hippodrome's history where it goes from an individual's ownership to kind of corporate ownership. Uh, but, you know, Lichtman you know, already has a presence in Richmond. Uh, he had opened up the Booker T. and the Walker Theaters along Broad Street in, I believe, 1936. Uh, and so the Hippodrome kind of becomes the latest, you know, feather in the in the Lichtman cap, so to speak. Uh, he eventually acquires that and the Globe Theater, which was just up the block from the Hippodrome, uh, in oh gosh, um, sometime in, in I forget the exact month in 1937. But they eventually are joined in late in the fall of 37 by the Robinson Theater in Church Hill. So mm-hmm. by the by the time the year is out, the Hippodrome is now one of five Lichtman theaters in the country. And the way uh, the Lichtmans. But the Lickman Theater Company seems to run it, at least initially. You know, they still use it as kind of a hybrid live performance space and movie theater, but more movie theater than, than live performance. It now has five theaters that it can kind of, you know, choose, you know, which ones are doing live performance, which ones sure. are doing... So it's not just kind of an independent entity anymore. Right. Uh, it's now kind of being managed as, you know, part of a larger piece of the puzzle. And in right. some ways, it's kind of, you know, kind of a reversion back to the vaudeville days when it's just one of a list of theaters. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about it is that, you know, uh, Lichtman was uh, was a Jewish guy, so it was essentially still white owned. You know, mm-hmm. it was from a white guy, someone in '37 to another white guy. Um, and you know, the movies, as far as we can tell, the movies that get shown, at least for the first few months after Lichtman buys it, uh, are just white movies. And which I think is is really you know kind of an interesting shift because yeah. you go from you know again what I think of is that golden age of the Hippodrome where it's showing. You know, showing movies, but bringing in you know big name you know African American entertainers, to then selling it to yet another white person who then shows <laughs> receives the show white film. Right. And so it's no surprise I think that you know uh, that you know within the first you know month or two that it's it's a Lichtman theater. There are people in the community that are really upset about it, and they sure. complain. They're like, we want to see you know black movies or black stars. Well, and, you know, and thinking about that going back to because I was actually thinking about that last night. Is there aren't that many black movies in the beginning, right? And, you know, I mean, what the, um, uh, I can't even think of what the, you know, it's like, but it's, I mean, it's pretty late when you're getting, you know, from from what I understand, is that you're getting, like, full full black casts, or... Yeah, that's that's a little ways down. Yeah, oh, yeah so, I, I don't know of too many. So, um, I mean, what, you know, what were, were they watching... I mean, it would have been a different movie. You know, I mean, I was actually thinking, would they have even played, like, Birth of a Nation in there? I mean, is that... Thankfully not. <laughs> yeah, I mean... 
Oh, jeez. That's a blockbuster, right? It's a blockbuster, but that's 1915. Um, Of course, the Hippodrome's around, but the Hippodrome... And it has a few... I know it gets released, like, four times. Like, something or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, the Birth of a Nation comes through. In fact, um, I thought it was kind of interesting. I found out recently that the woman who opened the Hippodrome, her name was Amanda Thorpe, who I think is a fascinating character that folks in Richmond don't know enough about. Hope to eventually do more on that at some point. But she opens up the Dixie in, in the Hippodrome. But she also opens up in 1908 a place called the Rex Theater, which uh, you know becomes uh, in movie theaters at that time. And what part of town is that in? That's at Seventh and Broad. It's where the National is today. Oh, okay, yeah. And, and it's not that. I don't know if that that's building. the same building or not. It might be. Okay. Um, it becomes the National, you know, not in, in a few years later. A few mm-hmm. years later. Um, but uh, which means it might have changed hands and might have just gone from the wreck to the national in the same building. I'm not entirely sure. But um, one of the things that occurred to me I was, when I was researching the other day was that uh, in I think it was in 1914, I believe it was, or 1913, uh, the Rex Theater. One of the things that these movie theaters had to do back then in order to kind of ensure that they got an audience was to be the only place in town showing films released by a specific company. So if, if this company was was showing films that you wanted to see. You had to go to the Rex, you know, right, for instance, right. or you had to go to the Bajou or, the, or whatever. And so uh, it turns out, you know, Griffith, D.W. Griffith, who, you know, directs The Birth of a Nation, uh, he becomes, he gets hired by uh, kind of make the decisions on what movies kind of get released under this movie company that the Rex is actually, you know, the, the oh, movie, wow. the theater for. And so I was like, oh, my God. You know, just waiting as I was going through, you know, newspaper issue after newspaper issue, just waiting to see, oh, my God, is is the Rex where the birth of a nation (laughs) debuts in Richmond? Uh, You know, ironically, you know, under the ownership, essentially, at the time of the same woman who opens the Abedrome, and it turns out, you know, uh, it wasn't. uh, I think the the birth of a nation shows at the Academy of Music first, I believe that's right. Um, And, of course... Huge response, you know. Sure. The, you know, members of the African American community aren't happy about it. The NAACP actually has some real yeah, with organized protests against it. Um, but, um, but you know, yeah, there is no connection <laughs> between that. Right. Movie, thankfully. But uh, I mean, so they, so they are going to be watching. You know, I guess it's you know movies with. You know, I mean, it seems like Bojangles movies would have right. been um, pretty popular. But I mean, it, it, most of those. Be wrong, but I don't think most of those are actually full black cast either. I think there's a couple. No, but like I, yeah, I think what seems pretty typical, at least at that time, is that yeah, you're you know some African Americans were getting you know some high profile roles, um, but I don't know when the first movie theater or the first movie comes out with an all black cast. I don't, I really don't know. I know there was. It's killing me. I'm trying to think of what it is. I know he was in the first all black production where they actually had like the the cast and a. Um, every single person that worked on the movie was black, which I can't. Jeez, I can't remember what that was. I don't know. Um, I'd like to know. It was it was one of those things. I, I remember researching him, and he. And but um, but and he, I guess he he would he would perform there. I mean, uh, is it Yeah, probably. Uh, I know that, you know, I mean, Bojangles, one of the neat things about him is that, you know, when he comes to town, which he does, you know, a fair amount, especially in the, in the 19, early 1930s, he, he has what he calls hometown concerts. Um, and I th- I'm pretty sure he performed at the Hippodrome on at least one occasion. He performed, you know, at the mosque, too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, right, of course... I know he t- toured with Duke Ellington. 
at least at least a couple times. You might be right about that. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure, but you know, he was one of those guys though that you know he he wouldn't just come to town and just perform and then leave. You know, and just say hey. You know, thanks for coming out. I'm from Richmond too. See ya. Right. I mean, he was. You know, he would come to town, perform, and then stick around. You know, either he'd come earlier or stay later, whatever. But you know, he'd get himself involved in the community and uh, kind of walk around. He'd sign autographs. He'd kind of make a. Uh, you know, uh, he kind of let people know. Right. He was in town, and of course, one of the you know, things he ends up doing uh, was, of course, paying to have that stoplight put in at the right. corner of Lee and Brook, a mm-hmm. famous story, uh, which is why. Uh, his, his statue is there today. So I mean, he, he he performs. You know, he pays tribute to his hometown, and he and he gets involved in the community while he's here. Uh, which I, and I haven't found you know any other performer you know, quite like that. Right. Uh, which is kind of unique about him. But uh, but yeah, he's coming. He's performing at the Hippodrome. Um, you know, there's another group that I think is worth mentioning that people in Richmond need to know more about that performs at David Drum too and they're called uh, they're a big band called Johnson's Happy Pals I don't know if you've okay. ever heard of them there's something else man uh, they supposedly had, had formed in the early 1920s uh, the guy named Roy Johnson who was the drummer he was the head of the group uh, and for most of the 1920s they're kind of they're famous in Jackson Ward so to speak they're performing for a lot of society events but in 1929, they get invited up to New York City to take part in this North-South Battle of the Bands contest. Nice. Uh, where they beat Duke Ellington. Yeah. In 1929. I mean, you know, band from Richmond. I mean, when Duke Ellington, <laughs> you know, by many accounts, is kind of at the peak of his, of his early fame, he's, he's the, that's the band at the Cotton Club. I mean, their that's, radio broadcast, yeah. his name is out there. That's fantastic. The South will rise again, but it's not the, not <laughs> the way, not not the way that uh, most people just say yeah. that. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, and, and it's wild. So they become really famous, obviously, after, right after that. They get a 10-week gig at the Savoy as part of the reward, and they get a recording contract from OK, which is one of the biggest, uh, what we call race record labels at the time. Uh, for whatever reason, they only end up recording two numbers. Um, why they didn't record more, I don't know. Um, but they're worth checking out. They're both really good. One is called Happy Pal Stomp, and the other is Savoy, uh, I think Savoy Stomp, I believe. Uh, or Savoy Rhythm, excuse me. But, you know, they're out and there. And they're iTunes. available? They're available on iTunes. You can you that's can check them out. And they've uh, been, like, re uh, reissued and whatnot, and that's not, like... They've been reissued, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so you can buy them on compilation CDs. You can download them on, on iTunes. They're really cool. Uh, they're a great band, and they continue to be, you know... Uh, active into the 1940s, but they'll perform at the Hippodrome for a couple of weeks in 1937, so it becomes a place not just for you know, national acts, but for local acts as right, well, sure. which, is, which is neat. But they had been the house band, not just in Jackson Ward in general, but specifically at a place called Johnson's Hall, which was just a couple of blocks uh, you know, west of where Maggie Walker lives. You know, okay. So a lot of times when we're giving tours there, you know, we tend to only often you know, mention the Hippodrome as being you know, the most important mm-hmm. you know, black cultural center nearby, but you know, Johnson's Hall, a couple of blocks down where the Happy Pals were, were holding court. Sure. Another good one. Um, and eventually becomes, uh, gosh, I think the Roseland Ballroom in the mid-1930s. In fact, when Louis Armstrong comes to town in 1935, which is thought to be his first appearance in Richmond, that's where he plays. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, the Roseland. Um, so again, you know, you know, coming close to the Hippodrome, and maybe he went to the Hippodrome after his gig right. there. I don't know. But, uh, you know, but, you know, again, it's one of those instances where, you know, he, he's one of those names that gets associated with Hippodrome that 
it'd be great to find that evidence that he actually, you know, went over there with his van, but it just doesn't exist as of yet. Sure, sure. Um, and so, I mean, I guess because they're... What, You'd ask though about World War Two. We got yeah. That's what I was kind of. I was kind of <laughs> saying. I was gonna say like so. That's cause, and and one kind of made me think of think of it is that um, the Black History Museum. Mm-hmm. You go there. They have, they show a little video, mm-hmm. um, and it's probably just because that video is there, and it makes me think that you know the number of soldiers coming through the area. Um, you know, soldiers. You know, you get a few days off. You you know, you're ready to party. Absolutely. I mean, it seems like that's it seems like that'd be a second heyday, if nothing else. Absolutely, um, yeah, and I'm sure plenty of soldiers went there. Um, what what I've come to know about the Hippodrome during World War II, um, you know, is more along the lines of what what role it played on the home front in terms of you know, kind of supporting the war effort. Um, I think the things that at least made the Times dispatch about it uh, during the during the war are. Uh, these numerous events that go on between 43 and 45, where the Hippodrome is teaming up with other th- theaters in the city to put on what are called uh, tin matinees, uh, where you know, children under the age of 12 are getting in free if they bring in a minimum of 10 tin cans. Wow. Um, and these are events sponsored by a group called the Win With Tin Committee. But the idea is they're, they're salvaging war material yeah, that will yeah. be you know, melted down and, and reused for other things. And these were really... You know, uh, really successful events, and, and because the Hippodrome is one of a handful of theaters that are, are getting involved, and we'll probably never know, you know, what the uh, what the count of, of cans from the Hippodrome sure. was in comparison to these others. But I think on the eve of the, the third tin matinee that was held there, newspaper reports said that I think over a hundred thousand cans citywide had been uh, had been turned in, which they said was enough to. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, to equip four flying fortresses, uh, to build one light tank, and uh, I think what eleven thirty-seven millimeter tank guns. So, wow! So yeah, so there you go. I mean, the Hippodrome—that's a serious can, know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, doing its part, you know, yeah. to, to make sure that uh, that the Allied forces you know, are getting what they need. Sure, and I guess in there also, um, you know. Cause Seems like that's when those uh, you know news newsreels mm-hmm. also come into play, right? In the beginning of your movie, I don't know if that happens right. before that. That had, that had been going on. For it a has while. it okay. Um, but yeah, so that was a feature. I mean, so you go to the Hippodrome to not only participate in the work, but also to learn about what's going on. Right. Uh, it'll actually be uh, they'll actually show a film uh, later on. I believe in the nineteen later the late forties, early fifties, maybe, uh, where you know, they're showing a film of black participation in World War Two. Right. Um, you know, particularly the 369th Regiment, the Harlem Hellfighters, which Bojangles was actually a member of, uh, that were on the front lines, you know, doing the dirty work in France. Uh, and so they'll, you know, that will be a, a, a big feature there uh, later on. Um, just as, you know, they had shown a film, you know, between the two wars about black participation in World War One as well. So right. it was no doubt a place that I'm sure attracted, you know, its share of, of, of black servicemen. Sure. But, uh, so that's interesting. I never even thought of that, that they would have a... I mean, because they're newsreels, but they're effectively propaganda, True. right? I mean, it's like oh, yeah. so that they have white and black propaganda films that would be different. You know, I don't know. Uh, like that they're just sending different ones? To, I, I don't know. I mean, is that... I don't I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I want to say no, uh, but I don't know for sure. I, I know that, you know, of course, during the war, uh, World War II anyway, I mean, you know, the government really gets on board with 
the power of film as a as a propaganda force. Sure. And it has its own, you know, you know, uh, uh, gosh, agency, I guess, uh, that was you know designed, you know, for the sole purpose of really making films and kind of screening films and right. know, making them, you know, to kind of be propaganda fully. Uh, and so the those would get distributed you know, throughout the country and uh, and stuff like that. And of course, they were also being purposefully shown uh, in countries overseas, you know, mm-hmm. kind of as, as a kind of a cultural way of, of making that argument, you know, we're, we're the good guys, yeah. you know, <laughs> we're doing good stuff here. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, there are, there are screenings, for instance, in Italy and that kind of thing. Um, but, um, but yeah, as far as I know, what, what little I know about all of that stuff, um, you know, seems to suggest that there's like a government agency making these films and they're being sent around. There, there seem to have been, you know, uh, some pretty specific oversight in terms of what goes into these films, who's making them, uh, in which case, you know, I don't know uh, if they're black or white films, but, I, I, you know, I feel somewhat confident in saying that, you know, uh, that they were probably getting the same films a okay. lot of other people were getting, you know, at least in, perp- in, in, in terms of, you know, keeping a consistent message. Sure. I could be wrong about that. Yeah. Um, they should have. They they're going <laughs> to step your game up, Uncle Sam. Um, right. But they're still doing live performance throughout that time, right? Throughout World War II it's and, and film? They are. Uh, yeah, they're doing a little bit. Um, not as much seems to be reported uh, during okay. that period, at least as far as I can tell so far. Uh, we will see, though. It's not far in coming, though. Um, however, what, was, what might have interrupted things... Uh, is a fire that takes place almost immediately right after the war. It's a fire that burns down the original structure. Uh, sure. It starts in the early morning hours of July 12th, 1945. So, I mean, the end of the war oh, wow. marks, you know, the end of kind of that first era, so, sure. so to speak, of the Hippodrome's history. And it's a fire that, you know, no one seems to know the cause of. I think local fire folks say that, you know, uh, there's a short circuit that, you know, created a fire. Thankfully, when no one's around, no one gets injured or killed, thankfully. Uh, but it destroys almost the entire building. I mean, by the time the firemen are done putting out the fires, some of the outer walls are still standing. The, the brass work, the brass rail that had uh, that had uh, you know marked off where the orchestra pit was and the stage and the audience that was right. still around. Um, but um, but very very little else. Uh, and so that's when you know Lichtman Company essentially is forced to make a decision. You know, if the Hippodrome is going to continue to exist. We need to build another theater, right? Um, and so uh, the building that's there today, incidentally, is the theater that gets rebuilt. So okay. for people that don't know, um, the theater that that's that's there now, being called the Hippodrome, being used as such, only dates from 1947. Ah, because um, yeah, because you're this picture. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that and, and looking at both sides. It's like, dude, that doesn't even look like the same facade. Like the facade's not different. just different. I mean, it's a completely different. Yeah. And you've gone from the you know the, the Greek style to the uh, um, Art Deco, mm-hmm. um, which, which is, is a completely different right. concept. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, if nothing else, I mean, the fire gives management and you know, presents them the opportunity to kind of rebuild in a way that you know is modern, uh, that is you know sleek and kind of in keeping with the times. And you know, now I think it, it couldn't have been too bad, right? Because the Taylor Mansion. Which is well, yeah. The fire was the fire was known to have damaged a couple of buildings nearby. I think the Elks, uh, the Elks homes or something, reported six windows uh, being knocked out. But and, and looking at it as well. Now I say that is you know this picture looks like I mean it's nowhere near as close as you know the the modern day one is like on top of the Taylor Mansion right, right, right. almost you know yeah. so that's 
it seems like today if that burned, I mean, your Taylor Mansion's going to be in bad shape. Right, exactly. So. <laughs> well, hopefully, I mean, that might have been one of the ideas, uh, you know, um, with, with the stone structure. Maybe, you know, with, with the brick, uh, I, I think, you know, the original building was made out of brick, um, which may have, you know, confined the fire really to the in- interior, the majority of it to the interior of the theater. Uh, of course, you know, I'm sure with, with the theater as it stands today, if there was to be another fire, that might probably definitely be the case as well. So the other, the surrounding buildings might consider themselves fairly safe. But still, um, you know, the, it's the theater that, you know, as I've come to realize, you know, in, in talking about the theater, I've given two talks that, that kind of center around the Hippodrome at the Maggie Walker site since February. And, you know, I make a point of telling them that there are two different hippodromes, which seems to catch people a little off guard. You sure. Know, those people, they only, they only know the current building. They don't know about this fire. But, um, but uh, you know, the plans to rebuild it, though, if nothing else, really seem to kind of get underway soon after the fire. Uh, by February of 46, you know, the, uh, the theater company that owns it, the Lickman Theaters, is already publicizing plans to rebuild it. So it's not like... You know, it burns down, and mm-hmm. you know, the war had kind of marked a kind of a dead period for the theater, um, at least to you know to uh, you know, convince the Lickmans that you know you know what maybe it's not worth rebuilding. Right. I mean, they seem to have made that decision you know pretty early on. You know, this is this is still a happening uh, yeah. happening place. It's going to continue to bring in money. All we have to do is just rebuild it, uh, and so uh, it's a construction, but. Of course, it's a much bigger undertaking, you know, than just repairing fire damage, building a brand new theater. Uh, and one of the interesting ironies, I think, about the Hippodrome's history in this regard is that, um, as it turns out, the company that Charles Summit had hired, the architectural firm that Charles Summit had hired in 1920 to build that enormous theater on Third Street, that again, in my estimation, would have, you know, marked right. the end of the Hippodrome as the, we knew the it. Two hundred thousand dollar. <laughs> the two hundred thousand yeah. dollar one. Uh, he hired the architectural firm. He hired for that is the same firm that, that the Lickmans hired to rebuild this one, uh, the, or the modern or the current building. So you know, the, the same architects that would have you know made the Hippodrome sure. an afterthought are actually the ones who end up being responsible for keeping it alive. And it, it's much bigger, or is it is it the same size? Or it's roughly the same size. Okay. Um, you know, I think. The reports when it when it finally reopens, I believe in August of 1947, uh, it's about 800 seating capacity, which is you know if it's bigger than the original, it's not much bigger. I think you know okay. I think uh, the reports from the original building um, had it between 700 and 800 as far as capacity. So they didn't really decide to make a, a bigger theater, just right. a very very different one. But you know they made a point, of course, you know uh, of, of of you know making a theater that was brand new in every respect I and mean, modern in every respect. So you, know, you had newspaper reports at the time that were talking about you know they had the state of the art theater or the state I mean the state of the art screen it was made out of this plastic material that you know uh, that eliminated the the possibility for distortion. You had you know state of the art you know air conditioning system, new streamlined seats. I mean this brand new marquee that's you know. I mean, so it was really designed to be, you know, sure. this rebirth was was a big deal. And they made it, um, they, they they kind of coined it as a Hollywood premiere when it reopened in August 47. They had a red carpet, they had floodlights, and, um, you know, the owner, the heads of, you know, the theater company that, that owned it were there, and, you know, city notables were there, too. And, in fact, one of the things I hope to get my hands on eventually, um, if they exist, are... The interviews that were done by a local radio station, WLEE, they had a guy out there stationed out front of the Hippodrome who was interviewing people as they were going in. And wow. hopefully those tapes are, are around. Yeah. Um, because, you know, uh, hopefully, and, and hopefully you have people commenting on, 
you know, and you know, people who knew the theater before the fire and afterwards, because I'd love to get some Absolutely. information on it in that regard. But um, they, they said it, there are 2,500 people turned out for the reopening in 47, wow. which is more than the Hippodrome could, could accommodate inside. So sure. it seems to suggest that either they, you know, they probably fucked the fire code and then had people stand in the aisles or... <laughs> you know, uh, over a Not thousand a good people idea right after a fire. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or they just had to turn a ton of people away. And uh, and it's being rebuilt as a movie theater and a performance theater. Well, it gets rebuilt. You know, uh, importantly with a stage. So yeah. yeah, again, they haven't they you know they haven't really abandoned this idea of live performance there, which is notable because. You know, the other theaters in town, you know, like the Booker T and the, and, the, and the Walker theaters, I mean, they have live performances there, too, but, you know, um, you know, those seem to be, what, what little I've come to know about them, you know, those seem to have been more movie theaters than anything else. So the Hippodrome has really kind of seemed to have, you know, kind of maybe cemented its 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 reputation or identity as, as a good place to do kind of this hybrid you know, form of entertainment. Um, and I think this, this post-war, from the reopening in 47, you know, up through the 1950s, marks what... You know, I've come to think of as the Hippodrome's second golden age. Okay. Right? Because that's when you see, you know, another wave of really famous folks come through. Uh, there's a reopening, essentially, of the Black Vaudeville circuit. And so instead, of, but it's a little bit different from the, the teens, you know, when, when the Hippodrome was, was bringing in vaudeville acts, uh, you know, two a week sometimes, you know, and, and, and folks doing very specific acts and then, you know, moving on, and then the next week would be very, very different. What was happening in the late 40s and through the 50s was the creation of vaudeville kind of packages. Uh, touring all together, so you know you would go okay. in and, and sit down, and you'd watch uh, or you'd listen to uh, a band play music, and then you'd have a performance of an exotic dancer. Then you'd have a comedian. Then you'd have—I mean, this is all—and they would come on, you know, one after another. So you know, in one performance, you'd get you know all the variety that kind of represented vaudeville you know, sure. in the early days. It was a way of kind of condensing it, you know, all into one. And you know, as it turns out, I mean. You know uh, the contracts for musicians, in, anyway, to go on these tours. Uh, you know, they paid; they were paid fairly decently you know, to do this. And so, you know, while a lot of the you know the more vaudeville variety act performers that were that were part of these bills are you know, still kind of relatively unknown, at least as far as you know household names are concerned. Um, you know, some of the musicians that are headlining you know these these performances are household names. People like BB King will come. Oh, wow. um, Dizzy Gillespie will come in the early fifties. Uh, you know, um, Earl Bostick, another famous you know jazz sax player, you know, leads a big band. He'll come through. Uh, Jackie Moms Mabley, better Betty Carter, famous blues singers are coming yeah. through. Uh, and so it's you know so you have kind of the war that kind of interrupts. And, and the Lickman ownership that kind of interrupts that first golden wave. But then, you know, once once it reopens after the war, you start to kind of see, at least as far as the management style and the way it's being run, uh, somewhat of a reversion of, a uh, reversion of, uh, you know, how it was being treated and run you know, from the late 20s uh, into the, you know, early to mid, you know, the mid uh, to late 1930s. Right. And is Jackson Ward bouncing back from that? Um, I mean, I guess is there, it seems like the... Um, like I was seeing that that influx of soldiers that were um, pouring into the city. If you're a black soldier, it's, it's, I mean, it seems like you're going to go straight to Jackson Ward. Yeah. And then with them all going back home, um, you know, and it, it seems even with the '50s, the uh, um, the white flight and almost the you know that Great Migration thing is you know it's, it's kind of peeking out there, right? I mean, yeah. is that is that not a uh, yeah? Um, you know, the Hippodrome 
is is a good place, I think, to kind of you know f- you know figure out like what impact you know uh, all of that stuff had on on Jackson Ward and the black population in Richmond because you know the post war period it's thankfully you know a common tale it's not a happy one but you know one of the most common things about you know post war American culture as you, as you mentioned is white flight from urban areas but this has really drastic consequences for uh, for African Americans who have to you know, are essentially forced to stay within the cities because you had white folks moving out into the suburbs. Um, and of course, the interstate system, which gets built, um, you know, you know from during the last half of the '50s, early '60s, um, subsidized by the government, but through the middle of Jackson. Through the no middle doubt. of Jackson Ward, I mean, which is another common thing when you look at, you know, when you go to cities uh, throughout the country, um, you know, from Richmond, it's true, all the way out to LA and so forth. You know, if you want to know where non-white neighborhoods were, in some cases, like Jackson Ward, uh, still are. You look to where the major interstates go, because that was the land bought up by the government. It was at the lowest real estate value, more bang for their buck. And you get these interstates getting built right through uh, these neighborhoods uh, that is in some ways kind of underwriting you know, the white flight, because these white folks are moving to the suburbs at the same time that these interstates are getting built. So it's kind of facilitating those right. folks that are living away from the city and may still have a job in the city. They can you know make a quick commute. Uh, but in a lot of cases, too... Uh, you know, some of these folks are taking jobs with them. Uh, and so, you know, you start to see this shift from, you know, the city as, as having been kind of the center for culture, business, everything, you know. Um, you start to see that kind of start to spread out a bit, but at the expense of African Americans. So once these jobs and and houses, you know, move out, you know, to the, to the suburbs, the interstates come through and split and, and uh, destroy large sections of black neighborhoods, then real estate values in the city, you know, of course, and significantly real estate, you know, values of, uh, of homes and so forth that, that African Americans are living in, uh, they, they dip. Um, and, you know, you know, places like the Hippodrome, you know, end up, you know, kind of suffering along with a lot of the residents. I mean, you see from the, you know, footage or reporting on, on the Hippodrome, what's going on with it during the 1960s is a little scarce. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what, what exactly goes on there during the early and mid parts of the 1960s. But I think it's very telling. You know, in 1968, anyway, when, uh, you know, when we, when we see kind of a, uh, you know, when, when it appears again in the newspaper, which is in the Times-Dispatch, anyway, it's an adult movie theater. Oh wow! Well, people know that either. And it was um, called still called the Hippodrome. It was called the Hippodrome. Um, and and I wonder what um, you know. We'll definitely get back to the adult part. <laughs> um, but I mean the uh, it's another podcast. The uh, the the um, the disappearance would be. I mean, is there? You know, in the sixties, there's just is it just because there's so much other stuff going on? Um, you know, I mean, desegregation. So that's sixty one in in Richmond. Um, I mean. What would account for? It seems like you've got a pretty good handle on everything except that. And why we'll go dark there? Uh, you know, I, I really don't know. I mean, you know, um, you have to go where the sources are. Right. Know, as someone who's trying to trying to learn about this stuff, but they're and still open though. They're still open, yeah. uh, as far as I can tell. Um, there are some sources, you know, the, you know accurate, you know, um, well supported histories of the of the Hippodrome start to get. You know, a little hairy. You know, once you get to the 1960s, because there are reports that say it closed in 1967, which would suggest that it was certainly in business. You know, throughout the 1960s up until right that year. Um, so why wasn't it being reported? On? I really don't know. Uh, you know, no one seems to talk about it being an adult movie theater in 1968, and maybe for a good reason. Sure. Um, 
and I think it's significant though that that's you know that's the role the Hippodrome gets burdened with. You know, uh, it's still under the management of uh, you know its corporate theater company. In fact, it turns out that between when the fire takes place and, and when the Hippodrome reopens in '47. Uh, the Lichtman Theater Company is bought out by uh, an organization called District Theater. So it's being run by the District Theaters, which is in some ways still the same old guys, but, you know, different people. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, they're, you know, like the Lichtman Theaters, they're running the Booker T and the Walker and all these other ones. And so uh, what's interesting is that when you look in the Times-Dispatch, at least in 1968, uh, you're seeing advertisements for you know, these adult movies having sure. a hippodrome, but they're, in, in a lot of cases... They're right next to, you know, more legitimate, you know, films that were being played at the Booker T. Wow. You know, so where, where you know, when the Booker T, for instance, is playing Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. And guess who's coming to dinner? You know, <laughs> these classics. You know, Hippodrome's, you know, uh, sure. is playing, you know, uh, is doing its uh, very different thing. So I'm fighting my urge to make an adult movie joke about Cool Hand Luke as well, by the way. <laughs> so <I'm> just, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it just, you know... You know, management you know makes the decision for whatever reason that you know that that's that's the role the Hippodrome is going to play within the district theater syndicate in Richmond. Right, and thankfully it doesn't stay that way. But um, and so that's also at the point where you know Jackson Moore in the '60s, late '60s, is going to be um, you know getting overrun with drugs and you know poverty. So it's it, it fits in with that. With, it fits in with the neighborhood and, and what's going on at that time, right? I mean, that it becomes more seedy. In a way, it does. I mean, seedy area. Right. And, and this is where, you know, Richmond, sadly, is not very different in this regard mm-hmm. uh, from a lot of other a lot of other cities, in particular uh, Jackson Ward from other black neighborhoods and cities in this regard. I mean, because one, uh, one of the most devastating effects of all this, you know, the white flight and you know, the dip of real estate values and everything, is that, you know, you you might think um, that you know once these white folks leave the city and then they you know start to uh, settle in the suburbs that oh well that opens up you know a way for African Americans to leave once things look bad in the city but you know more often than not they're not allowed to go out to the suburbs either right they're really kind of legally forced in many ways to stay in the cities because a lot one of, one of the things that a lot of these white folks do is they settle in these uh, these suburban neighborhoods and they draw up what are called restrictive covenants. Which are these essentially these bylaws that keep owners, uh, some of the original owners in some cases of these brand new suburban neighborhoods, from ever selling their homes to African Americans. And so, you know, so you get African Americans forced to live in a city where you know the number of jobs in the city is is seriously you know going down, where the real estate values are going down. Uh, and so you start to see you know you know uh, the emergence of you know black neighborhoods really as ghettos. Um, uh, and, and so forth today. So you know, with with crime and drugs right. and that kind of thing. And so I think you know, you know, in, in terms of thinking about the Hippodrome as, as kind of being a symbol of, of of that happening to Jackson Ward, you can think about that that run as as an adult movie theater is really kind of marking that sure. very very significantly. Of course, nineteen sixty eight, it really crazy year, you know, generally, you know, for, for civil rights, uh, you know, absolutely. I mean, with all the assassinations and everything like that. I mean, it's just. While all of that's going on, I mean, the Hippodrome's, you know, it's, it being an adult movie theater is, is, is very telling, I think, with, with, as far as what's going on in Jackson Ward. And, and, you know, that that kind of thing, you know, not being a, an adult movie theater, but that kind of thing continues for a couple of years. And, you know, by 1970, I'm not sure what happens to it in 1969, but in 1970, you know, reporting resurfaces again, and District Theater still owns the building, 
but they've rented it out in 1972 a group of teenagers that want to use it as their headquarters, you know, and, and a place where they can learn um, the theater trade, essentially. They huh. have an adult, you know, guy who's kind of the camp counselor, so to speak, and he's kind of helping them put on and, and learn you know, how to act and how to run movie projectors and all this kind of thing. Uh, end up getting a meeting with Sidney Poitier of all wow. people, uh, who, you know, wishes them luck and everything. But uh, there's, you know, there's a reporting on them in, I think, the fall of 1970 where, you know, they're renting the place from district theaters at a fraction of what district theaters wants right. to rent it out for. I think they, they want to rent it out for, like, around, what is it, like $600 a month. And district theaters is, is, is letting these teenage folks uh, use it for, I think, like 350 or something wow. like that. I mean, and yeah. so... So it's kind of, uh, you know, you know uh, kind of bittersweet in some ways because the fact that, you know, the district theaters is willing to let it go at a fraction of sure. the cost, you know, still kind of tells you something about, you know, uh, Hippodrome's kind of like clinging to life right. essentially at this point. And Not as much money in porn as they thought. <laughs> Sadly, no. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, but you know, it, but on the other hand, it kind of kind of marks a you know a and, and pretty dramatic they, shift in terms of how it's being used. Right, but they stopped positive. they stopped the, the adult movies at that point, right? I mean, they not. had they had by that point okay. because um, you know in this reporting on on the teenagers in 1970, it talks about them you know inheriting this theater and being really excited about it because they think it's going to be a great place to do what they want to do. But you know, they have a really really you know. Uh, big task immediately ahead of them, which is to, first of all, clean this place up. Yeah. They said the screen is ripped, you know, everything's in real poor condition, uh, so they've got to get this place in, in better condition if they're going to be able to use it the way they want to. Um, and so I'm not entirely sure how long they use it that way, but by 1973 it's become a church. Uh, so even the teenage years uh, right. are fairly short-lived. Um, and then after having been used as a church for for a little while, it kind of drops off the face, you know, or at least as far as, again, reporting is concerned, in the Times is back. And doesn't reappear again until the early 80s when it's when it's owned by the Stallings family, which still owns it today. Uh, okay. And they attempt, uh, I think the, the father of Ron Stallings, the guy who owns it now, uh, he and his wife uh, seem to attempt a uh, kind of a reopening in the early 80s uh, by putting on, yeah, I think it's a jazz performance and that kind of thing, hoping, I think, to kind of Use the Hippodrome to you know, to kind of breathe new life into the neighborhood, right? Kind of a beacon for um, for increased in kind of residential development and business development, that kind of thing. And um, so, what's going on now is at least the second attempt, right? Uh, at that, uh, well, it seems like that, that was like an uphill battle, especially in the '80s. I mean, that was like kind of the low point. I mean, really, from the '60s to the '80s, and it's really not until yeah. you know a few years later in the night. I mean, it's those attempts, early attempts, mm-hmm. to kind of grease the wheels, probably, and during the '80s. But that the '90s is really where that's you know the cities people start coming mm-hmm. back down, right? Bringing right. jobs downtown. You know, the uh, the old the old question of the uh, chicken or the egg begins of getting people here mm-hmm. or the infrastructure here, right? Um, you know, so yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and. You know, I, I think the you know the Hippodrome, um, it, it's I think it has uh, it's a lot of potential. Uh, it seems to be doing really really well uh, for for what it's worth. I don't know you know all the facts about you know how successful or unsuccessful the, the eighty three attempt at reopening was. I mean, Ron would know, um, but um, but this one, I mean, having reopened, I think since the summer two thousand eleven, it's still yeah. going. Mm-hmm. It seems to be going you know very very well. I know they have. Uh, on occasion, they'll have uh, comedy shows there, mm-hmm. ha-has at the hip, as they're called. Right. 
Uh, they'll, you know, it's uh, you know, music performances seem to be happening there on a regular basis. There are, um, gosh, I mean, just working at the Maggie Walker site, we see you know valets out there in front of the Hippodrome on a regular basis, and cars filling up at the AD Price parking lot. Uh, pretty regularly, and of course, they're working as as you mentioned earlier, kind of in conjunction with Mansion Five Two Six, the restaurant right next door. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Speakeasy is in the far back of that, but there are ways to go from the uh, the restaurant to the Speakeasy, and then from the Speakeasy into the Hippodrome right know, right away without having to kind of leave and then go back into the front door. So, uh, at the very least, you know, and to what extent this might have something to do with the success of you know that 2011 effort, the most recent one. Uh, is that it's you know it's it's not reopening you know on kind of on its own it's it's kind right. of reopened in conjunction with you know uh, this restaurant and the bar so it's kind of you know, kind of a joint venture there right. rather than just just the theater. Well, it's so it's a uh, it's an interesting thing. I was actually riding down there not the other, just the other day and was thinking about like how it seems exciting. Mm-hmm. That it's you know a lot of stuff is opening. There's a you know a bunch of other you know it's not just them. You know, Mama Jay's is right over there. A bunch right. of other places. Um, yet, how far it seems from you know those heydays that you're talking about. You know, and it's like it's it, the promise is there and it's exciting, but it's like man, just just walking down there, just being like man, if we could just you know, it'd you be know, cool. You, uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, just you know. Uh, just see Bessie Smith there. You're submission. Mm-hmm. I mean, that holy smokes! Yeah. Are you joking? Like, yeah. come on now. Yeah, right. No. Come on. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yeah. If it's you know, as people interested in history and doing all this sort of research, you kind of find yourself wishing you had a time machine all the time. Right. You know, sure. Which could go back and and check this stuff out. Um, but so. you know, but at the same time, it does present a really you know exciting possibility. A lot of times, you know, when you uh, when you're doing historical research on places and people. You know, these are often places and people that are out of reach. I mean, these are buildings that have been destroyed. These are people that have passed away. So they're kind of these separate entities. And so, yeah, you can you can do whatever you want uh, to to celebrate the fact that they they were here and, and they did what they did. But uh, but you don't often get an opportunity like like what we have today with Hippodrome to not only you know to celebrate its 100th anniversary by talking about it. Uh, and kind of talking about a history and, 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 and uh, real long and distinguished history, um, but one that also presents us the you know the, the opportunity to actually go to it. Right. We can take part yeah. in this next chapter of the Hippodrome by going to it, supporting it, uh, and being there, um, which is certainly something I intend to do. Uh, but you know, as I said, more often than not, you know, um, this is something that you know we learn about and then we that we celebrate just by talking about what was. Absolutely, you know, we here we can talk about what was and be a part of what is to come. And go do it. Yeah, actually be there. Can't see Bessie Smith, but you can see something else That's in right. the same place. So. <laughs> That's right. Um, awesome. Well, I've taken way too much of your time already. Wow. I like to take, take uh, more, more than I more than I said I would. So, oh, jeez. Um, I really appreciate oh, talking to me about this. Absolutely, um, it's been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure as well. So, thank you very much again, Ben. Uh, hopefully, it was your pleasure. Hopefully, it makes you want to go out and check out the Hippodrome, go see a show there, maybe just explore around Jackson Ward. Um, if you want to find an event, uh, it's uh, Hippodrome Richmond. Dot com. Uh, go see a show. Uh, and while you're there, the Maggie Walker house is right around the corner. Uh, I'm really excited. Hopefully you get a conversation about Maggie Walker coming up here soon as well. Uh, maybe it'll be Ben. Maybe it'll be somebody else. But, you know, go talk to him. He'll be at the Maggie Walker house a lot. Um, definitely, you know, follow this on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, at, at History Replays. Um, anybody that wants to help sponsor this podcast, very affordable sponsorships. And 
Remember, iTunes, Stitcher, very easy to subscribe. Um, tell your friends, tell your mom, tell your enemies. Uh, get your cousins involved. Get them all there. Um, just, just have a house party and get everybody to subscribe. And make it a great day.